Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. On today's episode, I have a special guest joining me to talk about Black women's sexual health disparities. A lot of Black women don't see themselves represented in the sexual healthcare space or even just regular healthcare, which can really affect their experience. I have Dr. Ashley Towns joining me today to talk about how to solve this, her tips for Black women to improve their experience, and some facts. This episode is amazing. Are you wanting to improve your intimacy and would like some wonderful ideas to help you? I have created the 30-Day Intimacy Challenge. To get my free 30-Day Intimacy Challenge, all you got to do is leave a review for the Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators podcast. Once you do that on iTunes, take a screenshot, share it over on Instagram, and tag me, Jordan Donnell, in it. That will get you your free copy of my 30 days of intimacy challenge. It is super fun. It is super juicy and uh, can't wait for you to try these. You can do it in whatever order you'd like, whether you'd like to do all 30 of them or pick and choose, it's up to you. Go write your review and get your 30 days of intimacy challenge started right away. I am so honored to have Dr. Ashley Towns on this podcast today to talk about her research primarily in Black women's sexual health and their experiences. Dr. Ashley Towns is a sexuality educator and researcher based in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Towns has 12 years of experience providing sexuality education in a variety of academic and public health entities. She has worked as an epidemiologist and currently serves in a postdoctoral research role. Her research focuses on Black women's sexual experiences and their access to sexuality information and health services. Dr. Ashley Towns, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. Went to Walnut Hills High School, went to the University of Cincinnati for my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, both under the health education umbrella, specifically sexual health education and community health education. And so that's really my, my background, my grounding started really in undergrad and so I've been a sexuality health educator since then. So over 12 years now, and, and I just, I was working at a health department there in Cincinnati, realized that there were some structural issues that needed to be addressed within the Black community. There were research questions that I felt like weren't being answered. The data that I was using for work wasn't recent, and I didn't understand why. I didn't understand research at all. I didn't understand data really at all and how we use data to make decisions from a policy perspective, from a financial perspective when it comes to how funding comes down from the White House to health departments, to academic institutions. And so I really just wanted to know more about that and how we could see more money and more resources and more education for the Black community. And I entered a PhD program. And from there, I've been doing research specifically for Black women and Black women's sexuality And I'm starting to get a little bit more into Black men, sexual health 
research questions as well. That is awesome. There's such a need for that because there's so many disparities between healthcare and sexual health for the Black community, but especially Black women. When did you know that you wanted to start working in sexual health and educating about that? (laughs) That's really funny because I... Actually, for those who know me, know that I was a nursing student, actually. I wanted to be a nurse midwife, OBGYN, and I was in nursing school the first two years at UC in Cincinnati. And at the time, I was struggling because I was trying to balance being an 18-year-old, 19-year-old in college My brother was away in Iraq at war. And also I didn't really have the the traditional freshman experience because I lived at home and I was in a really strenuous program. And I didn't really want that life. I did clinicals at the teaching hospital, really didn't like that side of prevention. So secondary prevention, I really wanted to, to meet people before they got there. And I wanted to know, how do I do that? So I became a peer educator on campus to learn about how do I start telling people my age now, what are the things that they need to do to prevent infection when they're 50 and 60? What are the behaviors that we can change now and implement into our lives now that maybe we didn't learn growing up so that we can avoid taking daily medication? And that's where it started. And I was doing a variety of sexual health education topics from nutrition to exercise, sexual health, alcohol prevention. And and it was the alcohol and the sexual health conversations that I enjoyed the most with my peers. They were always fun. There was a lot of myth busting. There was a lot of adults thinking they knew the right answer and were actually terribly wrong. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being the one to bring them the information that they needed and that they desperately wanted, but had no idea where to find it. And learning that sexual health education was significantly flawed in our state and in other states. And people really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how their bodies worked. It was fascinating to me. And I just stayed here. I love that. And it's so funny how talking about sex is so much fun. Like I love talking about it too. In the conversations, when you build that rapport and that trust, it's just so amazing what people share with you and how you can help them. So I know you recently released a study, and I want you to tell me a little bit more about this study that you did, Partnered Sexual Behaviors, Pleasure, and Orgasm at Last Sexual Encounter, Findings from the U.S. Probability Sample of Black Women 18 to 92 Years Old. You want to go ahead and tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, a little backstory. I did my dissertation using the same data set. And at the time, this survey has been around since 2009. Researchers at Indiana University started the National Survey for Sexual Health and Behavior. And I was looking through all of the different waves of the study and there, all, of, all of the data was great. It's about sexual health. However, what I noticed and when I started really digging into the literature was that when looking at probability samples, Black people or and other races too, they're hidden in the majority because we only represent 13% of the population. So if you're doing a survey that's supposed to be representative of what the U.S. looks like, there's going to be a smaller proportion of Black men and women who participate 
because we are a smaller proportion in, in society. And so whenever I wanted to look at data specific to Black women, the, the sample sizes were small. We're talking maybe 200, 100 to 200 out of maybe 3,000 or you know out of 2,000 or something like that. And I didn't feel like that was representative enough for me because realistically, I know more people than that. <laughs> and, and so I, I really had some conversations with my advisor about how do we how do we get more Black women to participate? Like, I thought that it was a lack of participation, a lack of enrollment. I didn't understand survey dynamics. And when I realized that sampling is based off of your proportion, we had conversations about, well, how do we oversample to get more Black women? How do we include more voices? Because I want to make sure that I'm representing my community well, and I want to make sure that we have more voices to have more power, more strength to the data. So we did this study and there was so much data that, of course, I couldn't cover it all in my dissertation. So I've been waiting on doing this paper and others. And so this paper focused on partnered experiences within what we just wanted to look over time in general. So it was only Black women, like you said, 18 to 92. We divided the the data into seven age cohorts so that we could really look at, are there some... We didn't compare statistically age differences, but we wanted to look at what are the proportions by different age groups of reports of sexual behaviors at their most recent event. How long ago was their recent event? Was it last month? Was it in the last six months, last year, more than a year ago? And we wanted to see this for all age groups. We wanted to know how are women reporting pleasure? Were their experiences very pleasurable, not so pleasurable? Did they want this experience? Was this an experience that wasn't consensual? Did they have an orgasm? Did their partner have an orgasm? We don't have this data and definitely not recent. And so we really wanted this paper to be foundational so that this data can hopefully float its way into educational books, sexual health education materials, be cited in other papers, really give a voice to what contemporary women are saying about their sexual lives that really is different than what all of the myths and stereotypes say about us. And so this was important. This was so important. And I'm glad that the paper is out and we've been getting a lot of buzz around it. And so it really shows about who are women's partners. It goes against the, maybe the Jezebel and some of these other stereotypes that Black women are promiscuous. Well, actually the data shows that Their most recent partner was a significant other, a spouse. Very, very small proportion of women reported someone they just met, a hookup. You know, so it really provides evidence to sort of go against some of the things that have been put in the media about Black women and and the behaviors they do and how often they do it. And so this was important. And like I said, I'm I'm happy to have led the paper and, and to have it out. Yeah. And I, that was one of the facts that I found, you know, so interesting, especially like my age group being 30 hookup culture is kind of a huge thing. And so I find it very interesting that, and maybe you saw a difference between the age groups, but less hookup culture and more married, that's wonderful or or spouses or significant others. Did you happen to do any research on like orgasm difference between black women and white women are like, if are one of them experiencing more orgasms than the other? We did not. And that's a good question. And I'm sure we could pull that data to, to look, but because 
because this data was so important to get out about Black women, and I really did not want to do any comparisons between groups because a lot of data around Black populations in general are so prevention and HIV and STI focused, uh, pregnancy prevention focused. And when there are other data, it's almost always comparative. And what I didn't want to do is compare Black women to some standard or some other group as if there is a standard to compare Black women to. I just wanted Black women to stand alone. And that was important for me to make that known that this is Black women's experiences. We're not looking at differences. But that question, I'm sure, will come up. And it might be important for us to look at across all women and not just Black and white women, but look at all the women who participated. Do we see differences and how, you know, where do women fall sort of? Absolutely. And I love the way that you really wanted to focus on Black women in particular and stop comparing everything to some other classification or group of individuals. And I know there's a huge orgasm gap between men and women. And so that's where it just kind of came from is, is there an orgasm gap even further when we look between groups? So that was just something that came up. I know I have a handful of Black women who listen to this podcast and support this podcast, and you have another article, Black Women's Lives or Black Women's Sexual Lives Matter, Tips for Talking to Your Provider. What are some good tips that you can share for Black women in relation to talking to their provider and helping them take control of their sexual lives? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. So that paper was written sort of as a lesson plan and it uses the same data set. So we're talking about the same group of women. And I was curious to know how many women had attended an appointment. So we had some questions in the survey about frequency of medical visits or if they had a medical visit in the last year and if no, why not? And some of the reasons were things that we know, lack of insurance, maybe they can't afford it, some other barriers. And so I actually did a qualitative study for my dissertation to ask women about specifically their sexual health care experiences. What makes them want to go? What makes them not want to go? What, what are those interactions like? What are their providers like? Do they prefer providers who are the same gender, the same racial ethnicity? And what I found from that was that Black women have, of course, a lot of barriers. Women in general have a lot of barriers when it comes to seeking sexual health care. But the thing that came out the most to me was that a lot of Black women don't see themselves represented in sexual health care spaces, whether it be from the nursing staff to the front desk to the provider. And because of that, I developed this as, well, what can we do in those spaces when maybe you don't have someone who looks like you? There's still ways that you can cultivate a healthy patient-provider relationship. And so some of the things that I, from my own experiences, hearing from the participants, and then even looking at research was that, you know, some women may feel anxiety or fear or tension, even getting to the appointment or waiting uh, for the appointment. And, And then we know that time is a huge barrier. Doctors don't have a lot of time with each patient. Writing down questions or concerns in advance, even if it's just a note on your phone to know that. I may not have a lot of time once the doctor comes in, but let me make sure I get my concerns out. Let me not let them ask all their questions and I don't even get a chance to ask mine. And then I leave the appointment feeling like now I have to wait a year or six months or what have you, or just some issue happens. So definitely writing down questions or concerns, 
definitely asking questions, especially about medication, asking for other options, really voicing your concerns about if you don't like a birth control option, tell them you don't like it and tell them why. Ask if there are new things on the market. Ask about how effective is this thing? Talking about pain and discomfort, dysfunction, talking about pleasure with your doctor. I know that may sound, for some people it may sound like, why would I do that? It's important because just like we would talk about pain. We should talk about pleasure with our providers to make sure that we're allowing space and room for that conversation to even happen. But then other things are just knowing about screenings, asking about screenings, talking about family histories, all of the preventative things that we need, not waiting until something happens, starting the conversation early and having ongoing conversations. I think those are ways to improve trust, improve communication, and really improve autonomy, you know, and, and sexual agency at the provider, but then also that can translate to having more comfortable conversations with your partners as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the big questions that I always like to ask is, are you having orgasms? Because I think that we're not asking that enough. And if you're not, let's talk about what's going on. Are you having pain? Is that the cause? But if we, as a provider, if we don't know I can't help you. And so sometimes not all providers are the same. And if if they're not going to ask all the questions, so sometimes you have to be the one to bring it up as a patient and that way we can best help. Unfortunately, that's how it is. Definitely. And even just things like having conversations about how do you clean your vulva in your vagina because a lot of women, oh my gosh, so many women think they're the same anatomical body part. And I'm like, no, they're not. And there's so many things on the market that can confuse people, these steams and cleansers and all of these different things. And it can be very confusing. So should I use this? Do I not use it? But this company is selling it. So it must be safe. And so many women are doing it and they're having positive experiences. So it must be safe. And individuals not understanding that the vulva is to be cleansed. That's external and the vagina is internal. And that can be an issue. That can be a reason why there is discomfort. That can be a reason why there are pain or any other symptoms. And it could have nothing to do with anything being sexually transmitted. And I think that those are conversations we don't have, as well as you mentioned orgasms. There's a lot of sexual and reproductive conditions, you know, that can cause pain and discomfort and that can impact our sexual lives, but that can also be an indicator that maybe there's a condition that we should be screened for. And I saw your video, this is endometriosis month. And and so many women are diagnosed so late that it, you don't have to go years in an unbearable state of discomfort with your partners or just in your daily life because you don't want to, you don't know how to bring it up to your provider or your provider doesn't listen. That's another issue that I hear often. And it's not just among Black women, it's a lot of women of diverse backgrounds saying that their provider isn't listening or testing them or screening them. And we have to do a better job of not accepting that as, okay, they didn't listen. No, keep pushing for yourself. Keep advocating for yourself. Switch doctors if you have to, because we don't need to live our lives in pain and discomfort and stress and agony. Life does that enough. We don't need to enter that into our sexual lives. 
Absolutely. And I 100% agree. Advocating is so important. And then I think about like somebody who did have a provider that shut them down or told them, blew off their concerns, how it now becomes difficult for them to have trust in the next provider and feel safe and comfortable. And it just creates an ongoing problem. And yeah. Or they stopped going. I remember having a participant in my study talk about how she hadn't been to a sexual health appointment in four years because of a prior experience that was negative. And we did the interview. I thanked her for participating. And then afterwards, I was like, okay, it's, I'm glad you got that out. We talked about it. Now, what can I say to you to help you or encourage you to just seek out a new provider? Because that experience should not dictate how you live your life moving forward. Now, I know that it has an impact, but it should not dictate. You can't give that provider that much power. Get a new doctor, start fresh. Don't judge them based off of your past experience. Just talk to them about what you didn't like from that previous experience so that they know what not to do. We're not my readers. No one is. And I was like, there's things that could happen in four years that you should know about your body. It's time to look for a new doctor and and start that journey back into taking care of your sexual and reproductive health. And I hope she did. I'm not sure. But I, I made a point to say four years is a little too long. It's time for you to just make up your mind and then do a call to action. Absolutely. As a provider, I feel like we need to be doing better too. And our impact isn't just the office visit and then they're done. We have a lasting impact on our patients who walk in and out of our door. And you can't just brush people off or treat people poorly because that does impact their long-term care. Definitely. I mean, that that's the difference between someone doing routine screenings and doing, and, and, not necessarily being excited to go to the doctor, but having confidence in the fact that they know how their body works, what's going on, and they're able to quickly recognize when something doesn't feel quite as right and someone who has no idea. And they're constantly walking in, maybe a little bit of fear, maybe some unnecessary stigma, internalized stigma. And I think that we don't need to live our lives that way for any part of our healthcare, our mental health, our physical health, our sexual health. I think that is just, that those should be just as you brush your teeth every day. Like those are things, those types of care should be things that we are uh, normalizing, like normalizing that it's okay to get screened. It's okay to get tested. It's okay to talk about sexual discomfort. It's okay to talk about your sex life, whatever that looks like, who you're attracted to, whatever that looks like, how you identify your own sexual identity and orientation, whatever that looks like. We need to normalize these conversations. And I'm very appreciative of the fact that the work that you do and helping to get this message out. Thank you. I appreciate that. You brought up a really good point. As a sexual health educator and kind of the work that I do as a provider, what is something that I can do to help support Black women and healthcare and sexual health for them? That's a great question. I think, so from a sexual health educator, researcher perspective, I would say 
and actually from a, from being a black woman as well and being a, a patient when I go into these settings. I think the best thing is to set some ground rules or lay the foundation up front, whether it's with a new patient or um, an existing one to say, I'm here to have a relationship, but this is a two-way street here. I, there's some things that I have to do as a clinician, and there are some things that I'm going to need from you. It may not always feel comfortable, but I'm here to listen. I'm not here to judge. I think just laying a foundation because you don't know what a person is walking in with. You don't know what stories they heard from their friends, from their mom, from their grandmother, their aunts. You don't know what they're bringing in. And so when you can just clearly state that you're, this is a non-biased, non-judgmental, free and healthy space, and what we say is confidential, and my job here is to help you help me, I think that that already will take someone's shoulders from being up to slowly coming down to say, okay, maybe I can let my guard down with this provider. Maybe maybe it's okay if I say that I've had X amount of partners or that I engage in these types of behaviors. Like maybe it's okay. And I think that once people feel like it's okay to say what's actually happening in their lives without fear of being judged or ridiculed, that's when you can truly serve the person and give them the best healthcare that they need, cater to the patient's needs. I think that's really what it's all about. Having a, an understanding of respect, having an understanding of this is how I talk to all of my patients. Like I'm not treating you any differently. I want what's best for you. So you have to tell me what you need. And I'm here to listen. But just reassuring positive information, positive affirmations around the fact that you are there to support them, but you need their help. I think that's the key is making sure It's a relationship, a working relationship. You have to learn each other, really, to make sure that both of you are walking out of there feeling good about the appointment. Absolutely. A relationship with providers should be a relationship, not a dictatorship. And it's very important to build that. And it's unfortunate how much preconceived notions providers come in with or judgment that they come in with patients. And that's important to me to always be non, for me personally, it's important to be non-judgmental when my patients are sharing things or talking about things, because just because it's not something that I do or that I'm familiar with doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. Definitely. I think that those types of views, complicit or implicit biases, they prevent a person from sharing. And by them not sharing, then you may not be able to effectively help them get what they need. Because if they withhold information from you due to fear, either from a previous experience or if they even feel that you're judging them, there's this internalized fear. There's a perception that can keep a person from getting the best healthcare that they need. And that does a disservice to everyone. That is going to further increase the disparities we see across race. That's going to further increase the disparities we see across gender and and various identities. That's going to further increase a lack of trust in medical settings, which is going to increase our numbers of morbidity, mortality. And so it really doesn't help anyone to do these things. It doesn't matter how much education you have. If you can't talk to a person and meet them where they're at, then and listen to them, it doesn't matter. No one's going to get what they need out of the appointment. And I don't believe that that's why doctors become doctors. I truly believe doctors become doctors to help people. And somewhere along the line, patients don't feel like their doctors are helping them. And and we need to address that. 
Absolutely. And as providers, we can do better too. If listeners take one thing away from today's conversation, what would you hope that is? I would say the one thing I want to say is own your truth and speak up for yourself. Be confident in who you are. The more confident you are in who you are, the better you are to other people. And that's being able to communicate about sexual desires, wants, needs with partners, as well as providers. The more confident you are, the more able you're able to ask questions. You're going to know, I don't know it all because you're confident in who you are. And because you don't know it all, you're going to ask questions and you're going to be willing to receive the information that's given to you. So I think that that's where it starts is once, although that's going to be the way that you advocate for yourself, that's going to be the way that you switch doctors, that's going to be the way that you build a relationship is first taking a look inward and saying, am I confident in my sexual being? Am I confident in who I am as a sexual person? Am I confident in knowing that my body is healthy and it's working the way it's supposed to? Am I confident in the fact that I know my disease or infection status for all of these things. Do I have peace about that? Or are there some things that I need to maybe talk about or address? I think it starts there. Absolutely. I think that is so important to develop that relationship with yourself. And it helps you better communicate all around. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I know that you have a awesome social media that the listeners should also follow. So where can the listeners find you at? Yeah, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. I love having conversations about this. But if if you all want to follow me and find me, I am on Instagram. So it's Dr. Ashley Towns, doctor with a dot, and then Ashley Towns. I try to share as many resources and the work that I'm doing as well. And I'm happy to connect with others. I do have a Facebook. It's Ashley Towns. I don't check it as often. But, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And that's Ashley Towns. So I have all of those. I love it. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by Pure Romance by Jordan Jones, offering top bath and beauty products and relationship enhancement items. Check out the link in the bio to start shopping today. By shopping, you are supporting this podcast. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.